We often think about classical Christian education in terms of what it's against. It's against public schools, secularism, and bad social influences. But what is a classical education for? Well, Dale Stenberg, who hosts the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, and he serves as headmaster of Pietist Classical Christian School, joins us to talk about the positive vision of a Christian classical education. We talk about how the classical Christian education model molds a student as a whole person, mind, body, and soul, to be a self-learner and a virtuous citizen of society. We talk about the importance of dialogue, narrative, and cultivating our palates to love the good, the true, and the beautiful. And we also discuss common myths about classical education. You know, creating sheltered, socially awkward students or belligerent culture warriors. So check out this episode and let us know what you think. You're listening to That'll Preach. Appreciate you guys tuning in today. We have a guest with us, Dale Stenberg. Dale is the manager of Teaching Fellows with the Davidin Institute. He also hosts a podcast called Pilgrim Faith with Joe Minnick. He also has experience preaching God's word, and he's currently working on MDiv in classical Christian education from Whitfield Theological Seminary. He's also the president and headmaster of Pietist Classical Christian School. Dale, thank you for being on the podcast with us. Absolutely, brother. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for the invite. Well, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was the uh, Christian classical kind of education movement uh, that I that I've really I didn't grow up with that. I didn't grow up a Christian. I went to public school. I had a great experience. I grew up in the Northeast. and uh, But a lot of things have changed. And I've seen more and more people who, some of them aren't even necessarily Christian or religious in a general sense, gravitating toward this kind of uh, education. And so mm-hmm. to me, I, I feel like a newbie. I don't know a ton about this, but a, a lot of my friends have you know, sung its praises and and, and spoken very highly of it. And, uh, you know, Joe, mutual friend of ours, he was like, man, you got to You got to talk to Dale. If you want to know about Christian classical education, you talk to Dale. So here I am. I'm here to talk to Dale. Yes. And uh, maybe if you just want to introduce us a little bit to how you got involved with Christian classical education. What was your story? How did you get into that? Yes, uh, it's interesting. I've been telling that story the last two weekends. um, I on Friday evening. Uh, I've been meeting with staff to tell the story of Pietas, so it's fresh, and I'll try to I'll try to keep it concise. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm 39. Um, I I grew up in a Christian household. Mom was a faithful Christian, still is. Uh, did you know Sunday mornings at church? She wanted to give us a good education. There's three of us, so I have an older brother and a younger sister. I'm, I'm the middle. I'm the middle one, and um, we grew up in Jersey. And when we were old enough to start formal education, mom sent us to a little private uh, Christian school, uh, but it closed somewhere around fourth or fifth grade and we entered the public school system moving forward. I did have a little homeschool experience in my junior high days, but that was because I got a bad case of mono and I wasn't allowed to come back to school for months. And so mom and dad sort of took over and and, uh, started home educating me. When I uh, grew up, <laughs> I'm still growing up. Um, my wife and I had our so I have two children. My oldest son is 16, and my my daughter is nine. 
And when Dale, my son, was old enough to start his formal education, uh, Rachel, my wife and I just knew that we did not want to put him into the government school system. Um, in Florida, uh, during this time, uh, the, the scores were very low. Our ranking was, I think, like 49th in the country in education. Um, so we were committed not only for pragmatic reasons, but also for religious re reasons. We wanted to give our son a robust education in uh, the Christian faith and tradition. Um, and so when he was five or six, I started Googling. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, we found something online and we began our homeschool educational journey. Uh, we found ourselves uh, uh, attending a, a small Baptist church in Brandon, Florida, and uh, the pastor, they had called a pastor about six months after we showed up. He had five children. Uh, his name is Billy Rosano. That's my mentor, spiritual father uh, to this day. He had five children that he was classically home educating. So he kind of took me under his wing and he started showing me the ropes. Um, my desire was to go into pastoral ministry. And so I entered into uh, Whitfield Theological Seminary. I was going to work on an MDiv uh, just to go into the pastorate. But they, they are one of the only seminaries in the nation that offers a classical Christian education track. And so uh, I took that as a sort of supplement to what I was learning while I was educating my son. Uh, classical education for me has been almost like a rebirth. Sometimes you hear people that grow up uh, in, you know, mainline evangelical Protestant circles, and then they get more intellectual with their faith, you know, whether that be Reformed theology or whatever. And they, they say, it's like I experienced another conversion, like I really got it. Uh, that's how I feel with classical education. Just from first grade onward, I got an entirely new education through educating my son. And it's so rich and deep and wide. And you'll hear me say this a lot, and maybe we could tease it out a little bit later, but it's also very human. And people throw that word around as a buzzword when they talk about classical education. Uh, but if you explore what is, what is exactly implied when you talk about an education for humans, I think that classical education meets the needs uh, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and physically of uh, the full person, the full agent, soul and body. Um, so that's sort of how I got into it. Uh, my wife and I um, actually moved back to Brevard County. We were at the time living over in um, near H Hillsborough County to start a school though. So my brother was an elder at a small Baptist church here in Melbourne, Florida, and we would come home and visit. And one of the parishioners asked me, this was 2019, 2020, uh, if he gave me some seed money, if we'd like to start a school here, a classical Christian school. Uh, so we packed our bags up and we moved over. We launched our first academic school year in August of 21 in Melbourne. We had 11 students. Um, the second year we had 98. We're in our third academic year, and we have a total of 200 students across two campuses. So this past summer, we opened up another campus in the north end of the county, and we have roughly 65 uh, students there. And then we have 135-ish here in Melbourne. Uh, so just from a business perspective, the market is white hot. Um, I think people are starting to look for alternatives. There's been some good legislation passed in Florida that gives um, uh, 
parents that are seeking alternative educational models, uh, some of their tax money back so they can start to explore various options other than public schools. Um, so yeah, I mean, here we are. It's been a it's been a journey. It's been a lot of hard work, but deeply rewarding. So, well, talk about that that humanness, that human aspect you were talking about. I know in a lot of conversations about classical education, the idea of things like virtue are really emphasized, and and you talked about sort of this. You mentioned a whole kind of a holistic approach. What yeah. does that mean to you when you're telling people about teaching you? You know what I guess what it means to be a human or what it means to excel yeah. as a human what what how does classical education tap into that? Yes, excellent question. One thing I tell parents when they contact me um, and I start to talk about our distinctives is that we're in the business of helping to train to raise children to be wise and virtuous self learners uh, and then the question is, okay, that's great. How do you do that? Um, well, you sort of look around uh, and you try to pull out from the plethora of revealed uh, things in creation, what children need to know to operate well inside of reality. And then you categorize that. And we have classes like math and language arts and literature and science. Uh, but the approach to, I'll just say the, the, the sort of modern approach in America has been to in the educational uh, system has been to treat humans as kind of students as kind of like retainers of information. Uh, so we have standardized testing that measures our ability to retain information and regurgitate it back on a test. And the system is designed for that. So the schools, the, the uh, um, school, the individual schools, they need to get their funding for the next year based on the the testing that the, their their students perform. So they gear all of their educational efforts toward testing, and that treats a human kind of as a subhuman or kind of like an animal. Actually, uh, you can train a dog, uh, you can train a cat, some cats, um, but what it misses is the the soul. So. I'll just bring up a very um, common reformed catechetical question and answer. What is a what is a man? A man is as a rational creature composed of a, a soul and a physical body. And I think what they're missing is the uh, immaterial component of the soul when they think about how to put curriculum together, how to create classroom environments, how to measure intellect, uh, how to measure um, sort of mental acuity. Uh, most educational systems are pragmatically designed in a sort of utilitarian model to say, well, what you need to do is get a good education so that way you can go to college and then you can get a degree that, that will give you good money so that you can have a house and a family and the cars and then go on vacation. And that is what education serves. It serves the utilitarian uh, role function of merely integrating you into the marketplace as a sort of cog in the machine. Classical education focuses on the development of wisdom and virtue because it recognizes that we are eternal souls going somewhere. We are here and we are never going to go anywhere. Uh, so we try cast the eye towards eternity. Uh, it's sort of like memento mori, remember your death. And that has an impact on our uh, motivations, 
our curriculum um, choices, uh, our classroom environments, uh, the workplace, teacher on teacher relationships. Um, you know, we're all students. It never ends. You just simply pass from one phase of education into another. Uh, to get back to uh, this idea of human education, then all of this is uh, sort of pointing at it. What we mean is we want to introduce young people to the tradition of human inheritance, right? So what we want to do is say, you didn't, you, you, you're born in 2007 and uh, you have paved roads and sidewalks. You have a whole infrastructure that you just take for granted. You have electricity. You can just flip a switch and turn on lights. You have air. We condition our air inside of our homes. I think what most modern students do is take everything that they have been handed by their fathers for granted. What that, what that does psychologically, I think what we're seeing uh, is create a sort of entitled, selfish mentality that consumes rather than serves, uh, which turns the, the person inward. You know, I always think about uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. The orcs were once upon a time elves and Gollum was once upon a time a hobbit. And what happened is they became consumed, you know, in Gollum's case, with the ring sort of satisfying the base animal desires to, to have and, and to possess rather than to serve. And I think that really does come from this focus on what do we need to know right here and right now, rather than focusing on what have our fathers handed us that we need to steward well to hand down to our children. So you locate yourself within the whole uh, sort of overarching human narrative of human uh, of history, and that opens the soul up. And when the soul sort of opens up, it becomes a better receptacle to then learn algebra, because I'm 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 participating in a very ancient um, practice, a very ancient discipline that my father's. Uh, developed or or discovered and handed to me, and that's treasure that I that I should not waste. So when I talk about um, you know classical education as a education in becoming a fuller human, that's what I mean. Uh, it's not only identifying ourselves within the within the movement of human tradition, but fully realizing what it means to be here now and my responsibilities both to my past and and to my future so it sounds like the classical part is a retrieval of something old things that have been kind of formative throughout history and re recapturing those tools and those ways of thinking i mean it's funny when you mentioned lord of the rings i, I feel like uh you know you're talking to people in classical education when <laughs> all of life's issues can be yes. solved Yes. by quoting Lord of the Rings. And yes. uh, you know, I had a, you know, I remember in public school, it's funny when I look back, I, I received a, a really, we had a great public school, a lot of great teachers. Mm -hmm. This would have been in, you know, the mid 2000s, something like that. And uh, I remember my AP English teacher having us read all these old books, you know, Dante's Inferno, Moby Dick, yeah. all these kinds of things and try to get us to read like the Odyssey. And it's funny because now at, I remember at the time, I'm like, why are we reading this? This is boring. 
You know, right. what is this? Like, you, can, you don't get paid for this kind of stuff. Now I go back. I'm like, I wish I would have paid attention and that they were trying to do something. And that at that time, and I don't know if things have changed, but they were trying to tap into that. Like, you guys need to know this old stuff. You need to read these uh, these great works because they're very formative and they're not the fruit of it is not immediately apparent. Yes. You know, like you go home and it's those are the things I look back and I'm like, that's what I wish I would have paid, you know, more attention to. Um, yes. What What about on a practical level? I mean, what kind of things, you know, if you talk about developing, you know, what, what kind of virtues are you trying to develop in people? And what are the practical ways that plays itself out in the curriculum? Are there different, you know, you, you talk about different categories about math and algebra and all these types of things. But um, can you give more of a, a concrete kind of on the ground? What's that look like to yeah. form these people and, and what kind of people are you trying to form? Yeah, excellent question. And this honestly is one of the, this is one of the most frequent questions that uh, I speak with parents about. Because once you start to shove against the sort of utilitarian approach to education, they go, but like, they got to get a job, right? <laughs> and it's like, yes, <laughs> they right. do. Um, I think what, what I, what I uh, attempt to communicate and you really do have to see it. It's one of those things I can say a bunch of words. I'm about to say a bunch of words, but really on the ground, when you walk into a room and you see the discussions and you watch the light bulb moments happen in young people as all of their curriculum is threaded together to complement one another, uh, it really is a, a beautiful thing to watch. Um, our job, and this goes back to Plato. Really, that's where it comes from. Uh, so the Republic, right? Uh, what was Plato trying to do with the university? He was trying to develop virtuous citizens. So if you read the Plato, uh, the Republic, he talks about the influence of music. He talks about the influence of math and logic, about language. Uh, he talks about um, uh, geometry and astronomy. Uh, and all of those things are essential. He doesn't say they're added on to a core curriculum. They are essential for being good citizens in the Republic. Now, uh, what happens to good responsible citizens? Well, if we look at the data we have in America right now, there's a formula for success that's basically made up of three primary elements. Finish school, get married and stay married, and have kids. Those three things are, are uh, the people that abide by those three sort of controlling principles tend to have more success in their employment than people that do not do that. It's like, why? Why is that? We start to ask the question. And it's because if, if you have the correct, if you're, St. Augustine talks about the ordering of the affections or the ordering of the loves. If you have an ordered life where your value system is properly structured, then your ability to move in and out of social settings and different interpersonal dynamics and your ability to understand things, retain them, but also implement Pro, uh, solutions to the to the problems that you perceive increases exponentially. Mm. 
Uh, and that's because of the wide range of things that you've studied. So, you know, I've seen a lot of classical programs where they just sort of like take the Iliad, they take Odyssey, they take, uh, you know, Homer, Virgil, Dante, they throw it at the kids and go, that's a classical education. But it's not. What, what you have to do is you have to get the students to think about those books and to be able to art, uh, clearly articulate what's going on with those books and then contextualize what's going on in those books for us, right? And once they get in the habit of doing that, this creates a new way to operate in the world. So it really is about forming and maintaining healthy habits that bleed over into anything you do, whether that be fixing automobiles or running a bank, uh, being a mom or coaching a sports team. These virtues and specifically, you know, the three theological virtues of faith, hope and love uh, and Sorry if I'm jumping all over the place, but faith, hope, and love. When you look at Paul, when you look at the New Testament, I was just talking with my son about this the other day. When you look at the New Testament, what you see is God's wisdom, and we take that for granted. But the emphasis in the New Testament is so much on love. To love is all that matters, or else you're just a you're just a gonging symbol. You're nothing without love. Love isn't only for our fellow creatures and our, and our creator. It's for the created things. It's for the world. And I think what, what we're trying to do with classical education is say, okay, all things were spoken into existence by God, and they are upheld and maintained by the word of his power. Therefore, everything is a conduit into consideration of God, who is love. And it's just that framing uh, that that once it's habituated, lends itself towards a more disciplined, self-controlled, humble, patient, kind, loving, joyful life. And once you have citizens operating, uh, you know, in community with one another that are all sort of formed that way to one degree or another through the habits, then you have... then you have um, a a good atmosphere for curiosity and genuine debate. And I think as we look around right now in America, what we do not have (laughs) is curiosity and a desire for genuine debate. I think everyone looks at everyone else as sort of walking idea bubbles that need to be changed rather than looking at people as image bearers of God that deserve love. And I think that's what that's the practical component of it is we need to we need to we need to uh, bring students into contact with faith, hope and love and show them how this is worked out in history through the books we read and how they need to move through their own lives. And when you do that, you have a more successful life by any metric. I was talking with a friend who he's a he's a philosopher and he was talking about the purpose of education isn't here are five different views, pick one, mm. you know, but rather to train your affections and your mind to love what is good and true and to yes. not love what is false and, and, and evil. And there's a moral way to it. And even now you were mentioning, you can't just throw Aristotle, Plato, the Odyssey. You can't just throw it on a reading list and go, here's classical education. There seems to be something more dynamic. 
And I'd imagine it happens in the classroom. So talk about what is a classical education classroom like? What are the teachers like? Yes. What's that dynamic like? Yeah. Excellent. Um, Let me let me let me riff off of uh, the previous thing you just said just for a second. Then I'll move into the teachers. Yeah. one a way I like to explain it is the forming of a palate. So when you're young, my daughter, when we go out to eat and we, I love food. I love to cook food, eat food. I love to smell food. I love to watch cooking shows. Um, so we go out to nice restaurants when we can, and it doesn't matter. My daughter will always get chicken nuggets and French fries. Always. That's what she wants. As she grows up and we introduce things to her to sort of stretch her palate, things that she's not familiar with, she will develop different tastes. And that's what I think we're trying to do with classical education. We are trying to develop the palate of the mind to sniff out anything that is good, true, and beautiful anywhere it can be found. And this really goes back to Aristotle's first sentence in the ethics when he says, every thought, act, or inquiry is aimed at some good. It's like, what do you mean? Uh, You know, the two that I bring up quickly with my students is like murder and rape. Where's the good in that? How can that act, that thought be aimed at some good? And we get into discussing that. And then once you create that ability to search for the good, the true, and the beautiful, now your mind longs for it because your your palate has changed. Your, your taste bud is bigger. Um, so, so that's one way. It's like, okay, well, how do you do that in the classroom? And it really is through dialogue. It's the dialectic. It is... Uh, yes, training them. So, you know, you have to you, you have to remember your math facts. Uh, but we're also going to talk about, uh, you know, the development of arithmetics from around the world. <laughs> how did the how did how did uh, China do this? Japan? How did Italy do this? How did, you know, uh, Germany? Why is it that the human, the collection of humans throughout history have taken units of things and shoved them into a baseline number uh, that normally is like five or ten? What's well, because you have five and ten fingers. Uh, so that's normal. And then math then becomes not so much memorize your seven times tables. It's like what you're doing is, and you do this through conversation, you're allowing them to discover on their own the logical connection between why I need to learn math and what I'm learning it for. So it's less of a forcing and it's more of a summoning out of the student what is latent in there as an image bearer that whose mind is equipped with the faculties and body is equipped in the, through the senses to discover the richness of creation. So instead of there being a sort of um, uh, uh, a lecture model in the classroom. Now it's a dialogue model in the classroom. So we read and then we discuss and we read and then we discuss. There was uh, one of my heroes, her name is Charlotte Mason. Um, She was kind of, she was a very big uh, pivot point in the development of classical ed as we know it today. And um, her big thing was something called narration. And narration is what you and I just naturally do. So like if, if, uh, if, my, if my kid comes home from a school and they say, we read Charlotte's Web today, I'll go tell me about Charlotte's Web. 
and I listen to my daughter recount Charlotte's Web. That's just narration. If you do that in the classroom with good literature, with good books, whether that be history uh, or literature or science or math or, uh, you know, uh, theology, we have a course here called Christian Wisdom, then what happens is the mind immediately starts to pay attention. So if I read to you a quick story right now or a poem, and I said, okay, Brian, at the once we get done with this this poem, I want you to tell me back what you heard. What did you what what do you know about the poem we just read? Then your attention is going to be on me reading that poem. And then when I stop and I'm like, all right, Brian, what do we talk about? You're going to try to reconstruct it as as much as you can. Now, if I do that with you every single day over the course of 13 years, <laughs> you're now what you've done is you and we're really battling screens right now but you're ripping the attention open to look for uh, the information that's necessary to understand. So now you're in the pursuit of understanding rather in the pursuit of memorization. So we do a lot of this in the classroom. Uh, we do, we, we introduce things through song. So lots of jingles. If I were to call my our program here, anything different, it would be like a liberal arts school or something. Mm -hmm. So the liberal arts, there's seven of them. You've got grammar, logic, rhetoric, mathematics, geometry, astronomy, and music. And those seven things, Plato said, that's all. You don't learn anything else until you have mastered the seven liberal arts first. Uh, so when you're, when you're doing things, you're never going to teach a seven-year-old history. It doesn't work. But you can teach them grammar using history, right? So it's these little things that we make. We, we, we select books that we think are the top quality books for that course. Then we sit down with, the, with our students and we discuss those books and we write about those books and we think about those books. And you do that over and over and over and over again. And it's a process that's time tested that has produced at least wise people, not always virtuous. But well, when you talk about the, the setting of like conversation and forming these habits in people and how do you make these logical connections? It, it assumes sort of a baseline, but I think we, we can talk about, you, you made mention of like what's happening in culture today, families deteriorating, all these things are deteriorating. It seems like you can no longer assume the baseline. And yes. so some of the, I don't know if they're, if they're necessarily critiques, but some of the ways that people are hesitant about classical education or, or, or how it can help things is, you know, uh, does the, you know, it, it's, it's a private education. It's going to cost money. It's not state funded. So people from lower incomes, uh, people who don't have two house, uh, two, two parents, a mother and a father at home, are they going to be able to do the homework? You know, are they, is, are they going to fall behind? A lot of these things that were sort of baseline that you can build on, unfortunately may not be there. What are your thoughts on that? Lower yeah. income, not having a, a, an advantageous kind of background. Stop. Yeah. Yeah, this is such a good question, Brian, and I really, really appreciate you asking it. This is something I grew up poor. Um, we never had money. <laughs> I still don't have any money. Uh, so I, I understand very, very deeply how 
much of a disadvantage it is to not come from the ideal situation. On one hand, there is no magic bullet, right? There's no secret sauce that you can put together to solve it. It's just not going to happen. Uh, but you can mitigate it and you can build a system, especially in classical ed. I think that in classical ed, we run the risk of always being sort of looked at as elitist. Uh, you and I were just talking about this before we started recording. And I think they've earned that. I mean, when my son was going into, I think it was like sixth or seventh grade, somewhere around there, um, my wife and I's li li life was very busy and I needed to, I needed help. So we were looking at a classical uh, program in Lakeland, Florida, and it was like $13,000 a year. That's how much I spend on vehicles. <laughs> That's like buying a new car every year. Uh, I just, you, you, you can't do it. One of the things that we've tried to do here with Pietas, we come well below uh, the, the national average with classical education um, uh, tuition. So we're, our average is right around 3,700. Um, now, how do you make up for that? Because the revenue produced by the tuition isn't enough to cover the cost, the payroll for the teachers and the administrators and et cetera, et cetera. Well, America is full of philanthropists. We have the most philanthropists in this country out of any other country in the world. So you raise money. Now, in order to raise money, someone has to believe in the mission that you're that you're 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 engaged in. So part of my a big chunk of my life is talking to people about the importance of recovering uh, something that I think is good for individual souls, but also for the body politic. Now, that's a that's a generational sort of uh, gesture towards a solution. Like if we could in generations, a little leaven leavens the lump and we can have a, a sort of social shift, uh, then great. And let's try to make it a little easier on the financial side. Uh, but on the you know, very practically, we have families that meet the description that you just said at our school. We're uh, we do a collegiate model. So we're three days a week. They're in class three days a week. They're at home two days a week. I know that our staff here is so committed to the development of wisdom and virtue in these young people that they sacrifice their weekends. They sacrifice their, their days when they're at home, um, trying to help those types of students. Uh, so you do everything you, you try to, you, you try to, uh, lower the financial burden as much as you reasonably can. You try to find good legislation and promote that that can help those families. Uh, you train teachers and you bring staff on that are already in the understanding that they're going to never be paid enough money. I liked a post on Twitter the other day that said, pay teachers need to start off at us uh, in six figures. It's so true. Um, we need to incentivize talent in education with money so that people can go to school to really do education. Education right now in college is one of the easiest degrees that one can get. One of the easiest degrees. So what? Do, uh, there's a bunch of people that are getting out of high school, like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but that looks pretty easy. And then they become teachers and their heart's not really in it. Uh, so you need to you need to incentivize on in higher ed, 
programs that are really going to compel top talent to get into teaching. And then you need to uh, work on legislation that's going to give some financial relief back to parents and then build systems in local communities that can serve those those people in your community um, as as much as is reasonably you know, possible. So those three th- things, I think, is is the beginning of a framework to try to answer that question. Uh, but honestly, we're so fresh, just as a country, in the recovery of this model that I'm looking for people to think answer that question in in good and wise ways. But it's a good question. I think we need to keep asking it. Well, maybe as we you know kind of come to a close, I'm, I'm thinking about imagine the skeptical parent. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're interested, but in my mind, there's, there's sort of two uh, common refrains. It's one, uh, not wanting their kids to be sheltered, you know, um, and then the other is the, the sort of culture war association, which I don't necessarily yeah, think no. that culture war is necessarily bad. What, what culture are you warring against? What culture are you warring for? I mean, that, you know, that's, but, uh, but in terms of sort of in, uh, the, the, sort of the politicized stigma of it. I think being, you know, having sheltered kids socially and yeah. then have I just signed up for this political agenda? Yeah. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on those kinds of concerns that parents might have? Yes. Um, yes. Very, very good. Let me start with the second question first. Culture war stuff. I think you're right. Um, I, I think that hey, if, if what we're fighting for is a culture um it depends on the culture you're fighting for and if what we're fighting for is to maintain a culture uh of wise and virtuous people that's worth dumping your whole life into if you're trying to fight for if you're trying to fight to preserve the culture of like gop political talking points that's something different or or democrat talking points <laughs> This is a big question. When people come to my program and they they have to go through a pretty rigorous onboarding process, when I sit down and have the family interview, I tell them, we are not here to make the next uh, sort of, how do I want to say it? Um, We're not here so that your kid can grow up and own the libs on Twitter, basically. I have no interest in that zero interest in doing any of that. Uh, I foster healthy debate from opposing views. A lot of our, you don't get 200 people that all think exactly the same way. doesn't happen. The whole project is to not pigeonhole people and to understand your opponent, thoroughly understand them, look for points where you can agree, take those points of agreement and try to build on them to come up with something better than you both started out believing or thinking or talking about. That's the project. That's all is to love one another, to treat each other as we want to be treated. It's so simple at the end of the day, really. Uh, Love your neighbor. That's it. Um, So I try to, I try to, veer very far away from selling something like if your kid comes to our school, they're going to be effective agents in the culture war growing up. That's not our goal. Our goal is to introduce them to the uh, inheritance of human tradition 
for the sake of godliness, for serving Christ in all all spheres of your life, your family, your church, and your and your and and the state. If you do that well, however you take care of whatever your culture war instincts are is up to you. Uh, but we're fostering a community that's not so much looking for the next thing to be against. We're we're trying to foster a community to to fight for the things that we are for rather than against. And I think that is a big difference, even in your marketing. If you come out and you say, if you send your kids here, then they'll pop out the other side, you know, um, you know, ready to take on the transgender community or something. Framing it that way is, I think, very, very dangerous. Uh, but I also think that it's very toxic for the movement as a whole. So I don't, I don't, I am engaged in culture war, whether I like it or not. My responsibility is to uh, hold up those things which are evergreen and not fading and passing away like mists in the wind. Because you, by the time my kid is my age, there's going to be a whole nother set of things to fight about. And yes, we need to fight about the important things right now. But that is not the goal of education. So I try to be very clear that the goal of education is to be educated. That's what it is. It's not so you're a more effective culture war for the right or the left. That's nonsense. Um, that was your second one. Remind me of your first. Being uh, sheltered, kind of, you know, my sheltered. kid's going to turn out weird. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I tell parents we are not sheltering kids here. If anything, I think that public the public education system has sheltered students away from the rich tradition of humanity. We are trying to expose them to everything. What we're doing is helping them as they are exposed, interpret things. So we're not saying keep that stuff out. We're saying bring that in and let's talk about that. Uh, you know, I, there are so many young Christian men and women that are homeschooled and the, and the focus really is on sheltering. Then they get into their college the first year, they have to take a philosophy course and their professor hits them with the trolley problem and they're like, oh, and next thing you know, uh, they're watching, you know, um, John Piper's kid on TikTok and agreeing with all that stuff. And, and because they haven't been exposed our job is to expose them, expose them to everything because everything is something to talk about. So far from exposing, and one thing I want to hit on that is socialization. What we're trying to do as leaders, teachers, uh, headmasters, deans, administrators, is teach the children what it looks like to grow up into the thing that we're trying to talk about. So you also teach through example, right? Um well, if, if, if we're going to teach by example, then we need to demonstrate humility. One thing that I never understood is the criticisms against programs are like ours. It's like, well, how are they going to socialize? It's like, what, by socialization, do you mean how does my five-year-old act like another five-year-old? Or do you mean really bringing them up so they can integrate into society? If that's what you mean, then that's only done by adults because they are the ones that have grown up and are integrated into society. So we pack a bunch of leaders uh, that are all aimed at the same mission around these young people. And we lead by example, mimetic teaching, we lead by example. And that 
brings them up and socializes them along with their peers as they navigate all of those waters. That's going to happen regardless, right? So that'll take care of itself. Our job is to help integrate them as they grow. Well, I appreciate you answering those questions. And those are really well thought out. I mean, that's really inspiring. I mean, a lot of things you're talking about, you really are having, you were saying you're having a multi-generational view. You're having a sense of like, what is best for a, a nation of people? And really, how do we be flourishing human beings? How would be people who are actually properly, you know, oriented towards the end that we were created for? And I think yeah. that that's a really, a really cool uh, a project you're up to. Dale, thanks for uh, spending your time with us. Thanks for taking time out of your schedule for this. I, pr I appreciate it. And uh, and all the thoughts. And we'll have to do this again. This is really interesting stuff. I think we barely kind of scratched no. the surface of some of these. I want to ask like nine follow-up questions, but uh, this was really great. And uh, we definitely want to keep the conversation going. But again, thanks. Thanks for being on the show with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Brian. Keep up the good work, brother. And I would love to talk again. Just let me know. If you guys appreciated this, make sure you leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can uh, subscribe on Apple or Spotify. You can also follow us on That'll Preach Podcast on Instagram. We also have a website, that'llpreach.io. Make sure you like it, send it to your friends. Uh, if you enjoyed it, we appreciate the support. And I will see you guys next week. <laughs>